You're listening to TIP. Do something different. Don't do the same thing as everybody else. No competition that way. No competition. If you do something different, nobody's going to do that stuff. Nobody's going to make an option loan. You know, nobody's going to call the We Buy Houses guy. Do something different. In this week's episode, I interviewed Casey Miracle and discussed some of the many creative strategies he has used to build wealth by using options and self-directed IRAs. We also discussed what the most impactful book has been on his real estate career, his favorite real estate conference, the teachers he would recommend for both beginning and more experienced investors, and much, much more. Casey is a real estate entrepreneur out of Missouri, where he lives with his wife and young son. Over the past 20 years, he's invested in notes, single-family homes, multifamily, office space, industrial, has done hard money lending, and even self-storage. He loves negotiating and coming up with creative deal structures to add value in opportunistic middle market properties. Now, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Casey Miracle. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly, and with me today is Casey Miracle. Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate you having me. It's great to have you on. We connected recently on Real Estate Twitter. Tell us a little bit about your origin story, your background, what life was like maybe before real estate. I remember being a little kid wanting to house hack, but I'm so old that they didn't call it house hacking back then. My idea as a youngster was, hey, buy a duplex, run out the other side, see how it goes, right? Unfortunately, I never really got to that goal. I made a U-turn somewhere. But from there, I don't know, 07, 08, something like that, I started buying foreclosures on the courthouse steps, got my teeth sunk into that. That's quite a shark pit if you've never done that. And flipped a couple houses, married my wife, started having a family, said to myself, hey, I've got to do something else other than my job full-time and my spare time flip houses because I'm not going to have time to, to raise our son. Kind of went from that to notes, performing and non-performing notes, and then got into creative financing, hard money lending, and then commercial stuff. As I mentioned, I started following you on Twitter. One of the questions somebody asked was, what was the most impactful book on your life? A lot of people gave some of the typical responses like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and Think and Grow Rich. You said the most impactful book for you was Introduction to Real Estate Option Strategies. I'm a big reader. That is a title that is completely new to me. Why was that book so impactful for you? Honestly, it's made me a ton of money. You'll probably notice I'm direct. It's made me a bunch of money, but that's not really everything. So that book is chocked full with hundreds of ideas. And it's kind of a course with like a workbook with it and an audio recording. And there's two parts to it. In it, there's hundreds of ideas regarding real estate options, their applications. And options are really one of my favorite things to do in real estate. If I've got a deal to put together, I'd like to have an option. And quite frankly, I just I steal a lot of stuff from Jack Miller and I repurpose it on Twitter. I wanted to do a deeper dive into options. I understand how they work in the equity markets with puts and calls, 
but explain to us a little more in depth on how they work in the real estate market. So one of the cool things about options, especially in the equity markets, is is there's a ton of rules and case laws about options, right? And so that is helpful. A lot of those rules apply to real estate as well. That's one parallel, if you will. But options, let's go down the rabbit hole. So options, what is it, right? It's a unilateral one-sided contract, right? Where you have the right, but not the obligation to buy. And if you think about this, it's not unlike an MLS purchase and sale agreement just for a house or commercial purchase and sale agreement, okay? And either one of those, you'll find that typically, not always, but typically, you'll find a contingency of some sort. Now, a contingency might be financing. That's a common one. Or inspection. That's probably even more common. But there's plenty of other contingencies you can have. When you think about options and the parallels to a regular purchase and sale agreement, really the difference is unilateral versus bilateral. A purchase and sale agreement has an earnest money deposit. So let's say your earnest money deposit is, I don't know, $20,000. That's quite similar to an options consideration. So for the listeners that don't know, options, if they're done right and done well, the buyer will put up something called option consideration. Typically, that's money. doesn't have to be money. But you can kind of think of it as a non-refundable earnest money deposit. Patrick, if I'm buying a property from you and I give you $20,000 option consideration and you give me 60 days to close and I don't come back, you keep that money. That is similar to earnest money, right? But in earnest money, you can get the deposit back. In option consideration, you don't. The dynamics of an option as opposed to your regular PSA is it's unilateral. So only really the buyer has the power. The buyer might say, hey, this option is contingent upon inspection or whatever. Can we walk through an example of an options deal that you've done recently? Most wholesaler deals are options if they're done correctly, right? A wholesaler, which is probably the bane of some real estate people's existence, right? But most wholesalers, if they do it right and are smart, will say, hey, seller, I'm going to give you money. And if I don't come back, you keep the money and you sell the house or sell the building again. But you keep my money. And then the wholesaler goes and tries to find a buyer at a higher price than he purchased for, right? And makes a spread. So that's a really simple option agreement. But you know the difference really is in between an earnest money deposit, which is refundable, and option consideration, which isn't. I'll give you another example that's longer term that I think you'll like a little more. I did a couple of years ago, I did something that I, I like to call an option loan. A free and clear property owner gets a hold of me because they're struggling. Guy's out of work kid is needing college money and said child just wrecked both of his vehicles. He's got a free and clear property. What I did was I lent him some money. I lent him the money he asked for against his property. I lent him less than, far less than his property was worth. The cool thing about this option loan is, is it didn't have a payment schedule. He's not making me monthly payments. He's out of work. That doesn't solve his problem. Instead, The option just compounds and accrues against basically a strike price or an exercise price, which is something we probably should have talked about in options. But 
essentially a strike price or an exercise price is the price that buyer and seller agree to for when an option is exercised in the future that you can purchase for. So let's say in this case, it's half a million dollars and I give him $100,000. That $100,000, instead of him making payments, that $100,000 accrues at $20,000 a year. The longer it goes, the bigger my equity or yield would be. And at some point, I own the property outright. What's interesting about that option loan is that property was like a $700,000 property, right? Now, if I go to that guy and try to buy that property for 20-ish percent off, he's going to laugh at me and I'm not going to get the deal done, especially in the last five years. Like Nobody's giving a discount in a hot market. But what's interesting is when you try to do something different, and I just lent him money, I got a 20% discount baked in automatically because any bank would get 80% loan to value. And then as the payments compounded and accrued, I'm getting a bigger discount on that property all the time. So it ended up being half off for me if I wanted to exercise. Now that gentleman did cash me out, he refied, but I wasn't unhappy to take a a yield that was a good double digit yield. It was 20 or 30% yield probably. And I didn't own it. And he's happy. You're happy. Right. He's happy because no bank would lend him money. I'm happy because I get a great yield on my money. It's super safe because I'm at the beginning, I'm buying at 80% LTV, but it's going, it went down to 50% loan to value. If I have to own it, I wouldn't be unhappy owning it. The longer it goes, the better it gets. I'm not taxed on it. I don't need a partner to do it. Ideally, do you want to own it in the end? I think it depends on the property. Like, would I be upset with owning that property? No, not, not at all. I wouldn't be upset, but I never lend money unless I'm happy owning the property. That's like a golden rule of mine. If you're going to put your money into any property, you better make sure you want to own it because one day you might. I want to circle back to the objections and the pushback that you get. Common objections to an option are, hey, you're going to tie me up. I need to sell tomorrow. I don't want to mess with anything other than a sale. Or they're super savvy and they know other ways to make the deal. That's it. But education is big. Language is huge. The way you say things is just critically important. Patrick, if I come to you and I say, hey, why don't you own or finance? You're going to say to yourself, oh, well, Casey's asking me for a loan. Casey wants a loan. I don't know Casey. That's a hard sell. It's really difficult to get, have people get on board with that. Now, if I say to you, Patrick, how would you like to open up a new income stream? That sounds like I'm getting a check in the mail with no work. How much do you like paying taxes? Do you like paying taxes or not paying taxes? Because options have a big tax advantage in that you're not taxed until you exercise, right? So if the seller sells, then they aren't taxed until they hit their basis. And they might not hit their basis until they exercise. It's how you frame things. You've got to educate. The thing is, and you'll see this on Twitter, like I talk about a lot of different things, but this stuff only works part of the time. And people blow me up about it like, oh no, I never do that. Well, that's right. But listen, it doesn't have to work a lot for you to do really well. It only has to work once or twice. One deal can set your life free. What are the biggest drawbacks or the risks when you enter into an options strategy or an agreement with a seller? 
What's your downside? Probably the biggest is understanding or confusing. And I'm guilty as charged of this. The moment that you confuse another party in a negotiation, the answer is no. You've got to be super careful. And that's where language is helpful and how you say things is helpful. Why I like options so much is because there's very little downside. I don't need partners necessarily. And sometimes I want partners. Sometimes I don't. There's very little risk. Typically, if you're doing an option deal, your consideration is probably 10% or less of purchase price. I mean, it might bump up to 20% or less. If you think of doing an option deal as opposed to doing a commercial real estate deal. So in a commercial real estate deal, you're typically putting 20% down. You're probably going to a bank or a lender. It might be CMBS. It might be a LifeCo. And they're going to have their lawyers draft up a promissory note that's not so favorable to you. If you don't do what you say you're going to do exactly by those uh, 30 pages of legal lease, you're going to be in big trouble. So my preference is to write the option. So I'm writing what the legal lease is. And that's not to say I'm going to try to take advantage of anybody, but like there are loan covenants that I've seen that are frankly preposterous. And you would never see those like in an option agreement. Having to explain to someone is probably the hardest part, but you're taking less risk. I've gotten option agreements for $1,000. Now I've got option agreements for several hundred thousand dollars, right? But it's scalable. Usually I'm paying less than 10%, which is better than you can get at a bank, right? So that's important. I'm taking less risk. Because if it goes wrong, then I I lose that money, but it wasn't that much money to begin with. I typically don't have partners if I'm doing an option agreement. I can if I can't raise the consideration money or if it's a big, heavy value add rehab kind of project or development project. And it's, it's crazy tax efficient. So there's hardly anything that I think is a drawback. It solves all kinds of timing issues. It solves seller issues. I mean, there's very little downside. The downside is covered. That's why you should learn more about. And all that is covered in the options book, Introduction to Real Estate Strategies that you said was your most impactful book. It's in there. So what I would say is that is not a beginner level book. If you aren't familiar with real estate options, then I wouldn't suggest go see, go get that course right away. That's like step two or three. I've got some other guys that I would give you to kind of start and figure it out. If I had to rank some guys that put together some amazing stuff, Jack Miller is my favorite. And these guys all hung out with each other in South Florida, I don't know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. A few of them are still alive. Jack Shea is a mentor and a friend of mine and actually has a website you can check out. Let's see, Jack Miller is on a website called Cashflow Depot. John Schaub, if you're going to start anywhere, John Schaub is alive. I think he lives in Sarasota, Florida. He's the introduction guy. He's got a website. His stuff is cheap. It's amazing and it's simplified and it's easy. Start with him. Jimmy Napier and Pete Fortunato. Pete Fortunato is still alive, but Pete Fortunato is, he's advanced, advanced. And then Jimmy Napier, maybe one of the best negotiation guys I've, I've ever heard. And he's got, he's got a website too. I've taken one real estate course in my career and it was with John Schaub. He's the gentleman that wrote How to Build Wealth One House at a Time, correct? Absolutely. Great book. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. 
Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. He was there and Peter Fortunato, and it was a really great course that I took. But that's the only one I've taken, actually. It sounds like you've spent a fair amount of money and time on going to courses, conventions, things like that. We interviewed Moses Kagan recently, who organized a, an event called uh, Reconvene, which I think was in LA. And it sounds like you attended it. I'm really curious about that. I've been watching some of the videos and some of the interviews from it, and they you know, have been great. I want to hear a little bit about your experience there and what some of your biggest lessons were from, from being there. What I would say to anyone who's thinking about going that's a GP, an LP, you should go. Best conference I've ever been to, hands down, and it's not close. I am a big Moses Kagan guy, although I would have liked to talk to him more. But the conference was great. And it's not really run like a conference. It's run like a hangout or a get-together. They've got a keynote speaker and they've got several sessions where everybody packs into a small venue. And the whole three, four days was tastefully done. And meeting some of the people I met was, oh, that was just the tremendous part. I mean, there's more real estate brain power per square foot in that room than you probably will find anywhere. And there's people that are great at finding deals. And there's people that have money that want to find those people that are great at finding deals. All of that to say, I would highly recommend it if you're a GP or an LP, or if you're just 
Like if you're already doing a ton of real estate, it could do nothing but help you. Who was your favorite speaker? I liked them all. They were amazing. The keynote by Weatherholtz, Eric Weatherholtz was just chef's kiss good. But my favorite was Shiloh Bear. And you probably haven't seen hers yet. I don't know if it's been released. Shiloh is like a a new up-and-coming GP. Uh, She's in the San Francisco area. And she's basically trying to raise money for basically to buy some properties, some industrial properties in San Francisco. What I didn't realize as I was walking to the conference, because the hotel is a little ways away from the conference, I don't know, a couple blocks. So I'm walking to the conference to you know go listen to the speakers, and I'm chatting up Shiloh on the way there, and nobody knows really who the speakers are ahead of time. I go and sit down, and Shiloh walks up there, and I, I don't know that she heard anything <laughs> I said on the way over here. But the cool thing about what the Kagans do is they highlighted up-and-comers this year. And I found I still feel like I'm an up and coming GP. I'm pretty new to syndication, but that really tugs at my heartstrings because there's so many people that are just starting out and maybe you don't want to give them money, but maybe you can give them advice or maybe you can point them in the right direction or maybe you can connect them. And the spark of just one of those things can ignite a career. I think that's awesome. Totally awesome. I would love to go next year to the event. I mean, I've loved watching those, the videos that they have, you know, introduced or let out on the, on YouTube have been amazing. Which one did you like the best so far? I really liked uh, Nick Huber. I got to meet Nick. He's a good dude, but yes, I think he loves to stir it up, which is, I like to stir it up a little bit, but man, he likes to stir it up a lot. He definitely does stir the pot. I wanted to go into some other creative deals that you've done. It sounds like you've done a lot of different asset classes. I think you've been at it almost 20 years. And so you explained a little how options work. What are some of the other creative strategies that you really like to use that probably the average investor might not even be aware of? I think I wrote a tweet about this a couple of days ago. And we touched on it earlier. Like I like doing different stuff. Foreclosure investments. The problem with foreclosure investments is, is that everybody shows up on the courthouse step and they've probably got more money than you, and it's probably cash, and they're bidding against each other. And one of my least favorite things in life is buying in an auction. I don't like it. I don't like paying more than I have to. I'd much rather be one-on-one, and I'd much rather not have to compete with anyone. What should foreclosure people do that's different? Buy the note. Buy the note from the lender ahead of time. If there's an auction, if you can buy the note ahead of time, you probably can make a spread if it's a good deal and there's equity. You can probably make a nice spread in between what you can buy the note for and what the place sells for. And it's a note. You don't own the property. There's no liability. And if you do that, you're going to beat all the sharks to the auction. I think that makes a lot of sense. So there's one that I talked about. Hard money lending, right? So most hard money lenders, they're like, they put up a website. Hey, I'm lending money. Come see me. Or they might sponsor a conference or they might go to a RIA or whatever. Hard money lending. I'm a hard money lender. I used to call We Buy Houses signs. You want some customers? You want to lend some money? Call We Buy Houses signs. Those guys need money all the time. They got got more deals than they have money. Flip that on its head. Call them. I've made a ton of hard money loans from calling We Buy Houses signs. Single families, water shutoffs, 
Most people are sending out letters, spending thousands of dollars and getting a 1% response. That kills me. There's probably people better at it than me because I used to do it when I was a kid, but I've probably spent $50,000 and I don't know if I got one deal from that. Water shutoffs, go to your local utility, find out who's got their electricity and water shut off and go find them and make a deal. They're not using that property. That's perfect for you. And then lastly, multifamily, but it doesn't have to be just multifamily, right? Could be anything with property management. Okay, let's say, Patrick, that the market has been frothy for the last five or 10 years. And let's say that some GPs made some bad decisions. They bought wrong. They underwrote poorly. They couldn't figure out that their taxes were going up. All of you three cappers, you can come give me a hug after this. What is a person that wants to buy an apartment building do? Or it could be any kind of bigger building with property management. Well, they're hurting or they're distressed. They're doing what they call those cash-in refis, right? GPs are calling their LPs and saying, give me more money so we don't lose this asset. But instead of that, a savvy property manager that already had property management in place in that area might say, hey, I'll go manage your properties for no out-of-pocket expense for you. That might be, I don't know, an 8 to 12% savings for them. But I want an option to buy or I want a mortgage. And maybe you secure the option, buy a mortgage, a second mortgage, right? And you can do the same kind of thing as I did in that option loan. Like You might cut yourself in on some equity on the deal. You might cut yourself in on some cash flow, some appreciation. Like You could say, oh, you bought this property for $5 million, but anything over $7 million, I get. You might even trade them. Let's say one of their properties is doing really poorly and you say, hey, we'll just let my 10% property management fee compound and accrue. But instead of compounding and accruing for an option on this property, you've got another apartment building down the street with more equity and no cash flow problems. And give me an option on that or give me some equity on that. Give me some appreciation on that. All of those things. Having that differentiated lens it can make you a deal when nobody else can make a deal. And so that's one thing that I'm really like gung-ho about right now is Everybody that I see on Retweet has interest rate fever, right? And can't make a deal. And I'm crying in my, in my soup about that. But they can't make a deal because they do the same damn thing everybody else does. They offer, they counteroffer, they offer, they counteroffer, they go get traditional financing. And they don't do anything differently than anybody else, but they expect a different outcome. And that's not how the world works. There are outliers. And outliers figure out how to make a deal when nobody else can. That's what I try to do. I try to make a deal when nobody else can. One thing that I really noticed on Twitter following you is you're, like, you're really open and honest and transparent. And I, I appreciate that. And you write openly about your mistakes, you know, kind of in the hopes that other people will learn from them or avoid them altogether. But you wrote recently about a $1 million self-storage mistake that you made. And I'm just really curious about that, how it happened, how it unfolded, maybe what you would have done differently. Here's the thing I would say about that. Patrick, you've made a million dollar mistake too. You just don't know it yet. And so has everybody else. Something to think about, food for thought. Everyone's made a million dollar mistake. And what I mean by that is, let's say you made a $230 mistake. 
$230 isn't much, right? You might have made a mistake that big in real estate. A $230 mistake. Well, that's a loss. Okay. That's a loss of compounding. So if you take a $230 mistake at 6% for 10 years, that's a million dollars. Making small mistakes can be huge. The time value of money is important. And that's something that people don't really think about is the time value of money, but small mistakes can have huge consequences. But back to my mistake, and I've made so many mistakes and I'll probably continue to make mistakes. I I don't do them purposely, of course, but I purchased a storage facility and I did all of the things I normally do to check out said storage facility. But what was different about this was I got the seller's financials like I normally do, right? I got rent rolls like I normally do. I requested and got bank statements like I normally do. And all of those things are typically required by a lender anyway, right? So it's not, it's not a big ask. But what the issue was is that the seller mixed multiple businesses in the same account. And so I purchased this property thinking it was full because I was led to believe it was full, but I should have checked harder. When you look at different locks on all the units, when you're looking at bank statements and tax returns that have big enough numbers in them, but they have mixed businesses in them, you really have no idea what you're buying. And I knew that before we purchased, but I continued and purchased because the deal was good enough regardless of like I've done many storage facility acquisitions over the years. The deal was good enough that I thought, okay, even if he's not telling me the truth, this is still a deal. But day one, we open everything up and find that the facility that was allegedly 100% full was 60% full. And as you know, 60% can put quite a damper on things, right? What I would have done is probably negotiated about a hundred or a million dollar discount on said property, but I didn't. And I didn't want anybody else to have to go through that. Every time I make a mistake, I say to myself, well, one, I say, you're an idiot. And then two, I say, okay, how can I set this up to where I never make this mistake again? And that's where I talk about later on, I should have done a performance lease with this person. Performance lease with an option to buy. I lease the property for say 12 months, 12 to 24 months. We agree on a price, but that price might fluctuate up or down based on the performance of the asset. And then after 12 or 24 months, then the option would allow me to purchase at the value that made sense based on the occupancy. I paid a million dollars more than I should. Now, I have an LP in that deal. He knows about it. The first thing is you got to be honest with your LPs. But he's not upset with me. And the reason why is is because that property after a year is it's not totally full, but it's 80% full. And the asset is worth, you know, 50% more than we paid for it. Even though cap rates are expanding. So if cap rates weren't expanding, it'd probably be double. The other lesson learned is if you buy savagely right and low, it can overcome many of your dumb mistakes. And by your dumb mistakes, I I mean my dumb mistakes. I feel like the mistakes that you find out in books and on Twitter and through courses are so much more important sometimes than the lessons that they're teaching you, right? When I talk to people, I want to know about their mistakes. And I know that's like probably not the first thing I should ask them, but I think that's some of the most valuable content you can get. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I want to talk a little bit about self-directed IRAs. I know you're a really big fan of them. We've got examples of like Peter Thiel, Ted Weschler from Berkshire Hathaway, who've turned their Roth IRA into like massive amounts of money. Explain to us a little bit about how a self-directed IRA works and how you've been using them to compound your money. So I am a fan of self-directed IRAs. I've got one. I've got a solo K as well. I like that a little better. And there's differences. So self-directed IRA, smaller. I think you can only contribute maybe $6,000 a year, something like that. And quite frankly, if you mess up your self-directed IRA, and this is important, you've got to got to know the rules. So important. They can take the whole thing away from you. Whereas a solo K, I think the contribution limits are fifty, sixty thousand dollars something like that. I haven't looked in a long time because I haven't contributed. And if you mess up a deal, they penalize you, but they don't take away your whole retirement account, which is good. I love those accounts. I think they get spat on 
and real estate Twitter because most people are looking at the opportunity cost and most people are saying, oh, well, real estate is already really tax advantaged. Why would I go do that? But what I would say to you is my self-directed IRA, I changed jobs. It had like $14,000 in it. I've never contributed to it. And it's much, much larger. I Rothed it, that 14, you know, I had to pay what, six grand out of my pocket that wasn't converted to the Roth. And now it's substantial and it's a snowball rolling down a hill. I'm not advocating to put every deal in a self directed IRA or at one of these account types, but you can do, if you can put a few juicy deals in them by the time you're 59 and a half and, you, and convert it to Roth, please convert it to Roth, then you'd never have to pay taxes again. If you're good at, at real estate, you'll probably be able to double your money on some deals and it's all tax free. And there's enough deals in my life where I make a fine living without doing anything in my IRA. But when I get the opportunity and there's something big, then I like to put it in there. But you got to be careful. I don't really like owning assets. I don't like owning hard real estate in my IRA that much. I much prefer doing hard money loans. That's usually typically what I do in, in my retirement accounts is hard money loans. They're safer. Another thing that I saw you write on Twitter, and we may have touched on this, I, I just kind of want to confirm, but uh, you wrote, real estate is real easy, capital R, capital E, capital A, capital L, real easy when you don't, one, don't own it, two, aren't liable for it, three, haven't personally guaranteed it, four, don't manage it, five, have no expenses, six, aren't taxed on it, seven, have no debt on it, and eight, still get to control it and get dollars from it. This sounds kind of like when I read that, I was like, what's he talking about here? And can you go into that, what you meant by that statement that you wrote? There's two trains of thought for that. Options are exactly that. Now, some will say options have debt on them. No, options don't have debt on them. Property has debt, but the option does not have debt. Okay, so that's, there's a delineation there, right? So for instance, I've got an option agreement on a storage facility right now. And it's, I don't know, Two, 300 units, something like that. All of those things you listed in that list are true. I don't own it. I don't do any of that. It's a piece of paper that's recorded, but I get what they call, I control it, right? So the proceeds and avails, the rents come to me. But if there's a problem, I don't own it. That's the fun of options. If somebody's uh, liable, it's not me. I don't own it. I didn't have to personally guarantee a note for it. I just got an option to buy it. That's one, right? So options do that. The other thing to do is anything that's like uh, an encumbrance or a title cloud, you can get the same impact or effect, maybe not quite as great. With an option, you might get income monthly, but with an encumbrance, and that might be a, a lien of some sort, a title cloud, an easement, something that's got to be cleared when a owner sells or refinances. You basically get a, a one-time payment for release of those kinds of things. What's funny about real estate is everybody scrambles to like class A buildings and they, you know, they want this big shiny tower or whatever. But the people that are really making some money have figured out, hey, if I just have a piece of paper or a recorded piece of paper, I can make just as much money. Then nobody can come after me. Nobody knows who I am. I still get the money. It's tax advantaged. I mean, there's, there's just all of those things you listed. You know, we've talked about a ton of stuff. 
the options, self-directed IRAs, hard money loans, things like that. For somebody like a smart, super driven college student or just somebody right out of college, what kind of advice would you give to them if they want to get involved in real estate? I would say don't pay more than $1,000 for a course because you can learn what you need to learn mostly for free. Twitter's free. Bigger Pockets is free. I feel like Twitter's the more advanced version of Bigger Pockets as far as real estate goes. Some of the books we talked about, maybe a couple hundred bucks at most. I mean, Invest in Debt is an amazing book and you can buy it for like 30 bucks. It'll blow your hair back. It might bore you, but it'll make you so much money. It's sick, right? Don't spend a ton of money on your education because you can learn a lot of that stuff for pretty cheap. And then I would say make little mistakes. Don't make big mistakes. I think Grant Cardone is a hack. And I think 10Xing is an awful idea for somebody who's new. You know, start small. If you mess up, it's not the end of the world. You started small. But if you 10X in the beginning, and God forbid you have a wife in 10X, you may never live to hear the end of it. Yeah. So start small. It's okay to start small because you're going to make mistakes. I made a million dollar mistake. We just talked about it. And I'm, I'm going to continue to make some mistakes, not on purpose, but I mean, Buffett's made mistakes, right? Munger's made mistakes. It's part of life. Learn from it. The good deals will pay for the bad deals two or three times over and you won't have to worry about it. It's fine. Find a partner that will give you grace. How about conventional advice that you think, you know, that same driven person should just completely ignore and disregard? I posted this today and I don't know how it's gone, but like... Or that you disagree with. Yeah. So something I disagree with is basis is forever. I think that's crap. Now, in the institutional world, basis probably is forever, right? But anything sub-institutional, I don't think it's forever. And that's the the middle market is where I play and sub-institutional is where I play. All of you institutional people, after you watch or listen to this, you can find me on Twitter. But basis isn't forever. Here's why. You can sell, get an option to buy it back whenever you want. You can raise or lower your basis at a moment's notice. You just need somebody that will buy and give you an option to buy back. If we think about this in an example, right? Let's say I bought a property and its basis is I bought it for $2 million and I didn't touch it. And I said, Patrick, I want you to come and let's say fair market value was $4 million, but I got a smoking deal. And you're probably thinking, oh, that never happens. But yeah, actually it does happen for somebody that's really good. Fair market value is 4 million. I bought it for two. Let's say I found a distressed seller and I want to sell it to you for three. You're not unhappy to buy something at 25% off fair market value that's the cash flows well. And you probably wouldn't be opposed to giving me an option to buy it back for $3 million since I did the solid for you of giving it to you for $3 million, right? Let's say you buy it from me and I get an option to buy it back from you in 10 years at $3 million. What happens then, right? I get to come back in and buy something that might be worth $7 million for $3 million. And my basis isn't forever because my basis was $2 million, but now it's more taxable at $3 million. Yeah, I don't think basis is forever, but you'll hear that from everybody else. Now, what happened to you in the meantime for 10 years? Okay, you got to buy something. You got to buy a great deal. You got to cash flow amazingly well for 10 years. So you're not necessarily unhappy with the deal. You still made a ton of money. You just, you're just out of the asset after 10 years. You and me are probably now friends. 
And maybe it happens again, or maybe you do it for somebody else. But basis isn't forever. Casey, this has been great. I really appreciate your time today. You know, all these kind of more advanced stuff that are available to real estate investors. If you had to kind of summarize or just list one big takeaway that you'd want our listeners to walk away from, what would that be? Do something different. Don't do the same thing as everybody else. No competition that way. No competition. If you do something different, nobody's going to do that stuff. Nobody's going to make an option loan. You know, nobody's going to call the We Buy Houses guy. Do something different. I love it. So for our listeners that want to learn more about you, maybe get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, Twitter at Casey Miracle. So that's C-A-S-E-Y-M-E-R-I-C-L-E. You want to hit me up, just post something, DM me. You know, we can talk about investment, deal structuring. I'm happy to help you with that. If you've got a distressed problem, hit me up there. I, m- I might be able to have, a, I might have a strategy that could save you. Might not, but I might. Feel free to reach out. Awesome. Casey, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed today. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate talking to you, man. Okay, guys, that's all I have for Real Estate 101. I hope you really enjoyed that episode and I'll see you back here next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.